One of the things that I, I think many people love about New England is that it's filled with places where very significant events happened. World-changing, history-making events. Plymouth Rock. An unimpressive rock, but a big moment happened there. Lexington and Concord, the first shots of the revolution were fired. And in Quincy, the first Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> this too on par with these world-shaking moments as well. Much further back in history, there was a, a key moment that shaped history to an even greater degree in a garden. In this first garden, we call the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in perfection, knowing God intimately. No sin, no brokenness. Paradise in every way. And then a moment of temptation came to them in the garden. They faced the question, would they trust God, his word and his way, or, or would they say, no, we'll go our own way? We'll choose our own will instead of God's will. In that moment of temptation, they chose their own path. They rejected God's way. And as a result of that key moment in that garden, the world was changed. Sin had broken in. Suffering and death would now mark the world. All of life, all of us, all people since then have been marred by this sin. There's still much good in the world. There is much grace, but everything touched because of that failure in the garden. But a moment would come generations later, another moment in a different garden. And that garden, that moment, had the potential to transform even more so than that very first garden. And that's what we'll explore this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 26. Today will be in Matthew 26, starting in verse 30. So the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 832. Page 832 in the Bibles we provided. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you as we work our way through there. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 26. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, will start in verse 30. We'll work our way through verse 56. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. There's a table at the back of the room. There's a stack of Bibles there. We encourage you to grab one of those Bibles as our gift following the service this morning. So we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. He came up to Jesus at once, said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me? But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust Jesus and treasure his faithfulness. Trust Jesus and treasure his faithfulness. So look at our passage in three parts. So first, we'll see the faithful one promises. Second, the faithful one submits. And then third, the faithful one betrayed. So the faithful one promises, the faithful one submits, the faithful one betrayed. So first we see the faithful one promises in verses 30 to 35. After Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples, which we saw last week, they sang a hymn together, then crossed the Kidron Valley and went up to the Mount of Olives. And at the Passover meal, we saw last week, Jesus had told his 12 disciples that one of them would betray him. And we'll see that play out in our passage this morning. But now he tells them, verse 31, that all of them would fall away that very night. Every one of his disciples would scatter. They would abandon. They would leave Jesus. Jesus teaches them this. He quotes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd, 
and the sheep will be scattered. The shepherd here refers to the good shepherd, Jesus. And he informs us that he will be struck, and when he is struck, they will run, they will scatter, they will abandon him. Now his quote from Zechariah 13, 7 says, I will strike this shepherd. It's a reasonable question. Well, who is the I? Who is it that will strike the shepherd? Who is it that will strike Jesus? Well, in the hours ahead, Jesus would certainly be struck by the hands of men. They would beat him, mock him. They would drive nails in his hands. But the weight of this moment that would nearly crush Jesus is that Jesus would face a striking from the very hand of God, the Father himself. And Jesus is making clear to them when he is struck, his disciples, his sheep, will be scattered. So Jesus knew this was going to happen, and he's telling them this will happen. But even in this, friends, we see grace and the hope of restoration. We should see that in verse 32, Jesus predicts his resurrection. He will be raised, and he tells them after that, so after his cross and resurrection, he will meet them in Galilee. He had already told them this, but here he reminds them. After these events that are about to happen, his death and resurrection, then meet him in Galilee. Even after they've scattered, even after they have abandoned him, Jesus now says, even after that, meet me there. Jesus knew their weakness. Unfortunately, they didn't know how weak they really were. In response to Jesus' prediction of their scattering, we see Peter's response, verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. After observing this Gospel of Matthew, watching Peter, it's not surprising that Peter would speak first. He would speak the loudest, in the most proud way, as if to say, these other guys... They're kind of weak. They may let you down, Jesus, but you can count on me. I will be there. I will never abandon you. Jesus answers to Peter. Now, Peter, in fact, not only will you abandon me, but three times you will deny that you even know me. And yet Peter still can't be quiet, so verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So in his pride, self-reliance, Peter makes bold claims. And I think Peter believes them. This is his intention. He's convinced he will do this. Peter says it the loudest, but we see in the text that all the disciples said the same. Look at verse 35. All the disciples said the same thing. So yes, Peter said it first, maybe said it louder than anyone else, but all the disciples said, Jesus, we're with you. We won't deny you. We will stay. We would never be scattered. And friend, if we're honest, there's always a temptation for us to make bold claims of what we will do for Jesus. I will do this for you, Jesus. Or I will refuse to do that for you, Jesus. We want to see that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen that night. That he would be struck, that his closest friends would abandon him, and he would be left utterly alone. 
where he knew his closest disciples, the one he had been with for three years, almost nonstop, that in this darkest of valleys that he would face, they would all abandon him. And yet even knowing this, Jesus does not pronounce condemnation on them. He doesn't write them off. Instead, he shows them grace and compassion as he gives them this promise, after I'm raised, I will meet you there. Even you who abandoned me, especially you who abandoned me, I will meet you there. That's a kindness that Jesus tells them they will be scattered. So that they shouldn't have been shocked when they fell. He told them repeatedly that he would suffer and die and that he would be raised. And here he reinforces that. And he assures them of his love and willingness to forgive and to restore. When he says, you'll be scattered, but after the scattering, after the abandoning, after you won't even be seen with me, I'll meet you there. I'll restore you. There will be grace for you then. In love, Jesus was preparing them. And in essence, he's saying, in essence, he's saying you will fail me, but I will never fail you. You will leave me in my weakest moment, but I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Friends, what a glorious Savior we have in Jesus. And he was struck, and he was raised, and he continues today restoring, brash, boastful, self-preserving people like me and like you. This is good news for us, for when we have good intentions to serve Jesus and we fail. But if you've been a Christian for a while, you, you've had this experience perhaps where you thought about a, a family member or fellow student or neighbor that you wanted to share the good news of Jesus with. And so you perhaps prepared and you prayed and the moment came, and it's as if the door had opened for you to share, but in the moment, you shrank back. You couldn't speak up. I've been there. I'm guessing you've been there. We fail in the moment, and there is grace for us. There's good news of restoration for when we say we won't commit anymore that habitual sin that we fought against and we fought against we've, and we've made some progress. And with a broken, repentant heart, we said, I'll never do it again. And that's what our intention was. That's what we hoped for and had prayed for and believed. And yet in time, we fall again. There's restoration for us from Jesus. Our Savior knows how we, his disciples, fail him. We have failed him, and we will fail him. But friends, he has never failed you, and he will never fail you. And Christ's life, death, and resurrection show that he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. See that Jesus, the promised one, the faithful one, promised Second, we see the faithful one submits in verses 36 to 46. 
We see in verse 36, Jesus went with him to a place on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. It's a garden-like grove. We often refer to it as the Garden of Gethsemane. At this point, one of the disciples had already left the 12 to go and betray Jesus, Judas. So there are 11 disciples. So Jesus and the 11 go to the garden. Jesus leaves behind eight of them and takes the three closest, Peter, James, and John, with him as they go a little bit further. And as he goes, we we see that he uh, seeks to spend time alone while also asking them to join in praying. Look at verse 38. It says, Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see that Jesus is deeply troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow, to the point of death, so that he falls on his face and prays. Why? Why was Jesus so distressed, so troubled, so overwhelmed? You've been with us in Matthew. As we've walked through Matthew, Jesus was always under control. Whether questioned, opposed, no matter who it was, always at peace, always powerful, and yet here, overwhelmed. If you're familiar with the history of God's people across the centuries, we have compelling stories in history of Christians around the world who faced death, being stoned, being lynched, being burned at a stake with incredible peace, courage. And so you might think, well, why isn't Jesus like that? Jesus is overwhelmed there at peace. Is Jesus in some way a coward based on what we see here? Is Jesus weak, we might wonder? Well, the fact is he's not at all, for Jesus was not facing a death like anyone before him. He's facing something absolutely unique, and he knew it. At this moment in the garden, it's as if he's beginning to step into it and seeing the full breadth of it. Jesus has stated repeatedly his own purpose in coming. We saw it earlier in Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus has said, that's why I came. That he would give his life for the many. To pay the price for the many. Felt the great weight now of what was about to happen. In fact, what was beginning to happen in that very hour. Jesus alludes in the text to what was now nearly overwhelming him as he asks the Father if the cup could pass from him. It's what made his death unique, it's what made this moment so weighty, this reality of this cup. The cup is an image used in the Old Testament to refer to the just wrath of God against sin and rebellion, against sinners and their rebellion. Alluded to in numerous places, Isaiah 51, 17, Jeremiah 25, 15. And as a part of Jesus' mission would be that he would drink this cup of wrath that he did not deserve 
in place of those who did deserve it. The Bible says that all people have rebelled against God. We, like Adam and Eve before us, have gone our own way. We've sinned against God, and the just penalty that we deserve is judgment from this righteous God. What I deserve, what you deserve, is the cup of wrath. And in this looming death, Jesus knew that he who knew no sin was going to become sin for us. He knew that he'd be bearing the sins of the world. And he knew that in bearing those sins, he would also receive the just penalty in our place for those sins. He would face the just wrath of God poured out on him. And with that, Jesus would face alienation from his Father and from the Holy Spirit as a part of this great punishment. This is perhaps the most significant aspect of it. For Jesus had lived in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit throughout all eternity. As he takes this wrath, he would do so alone, disconnected, alienated from the Father because of our sin. So we must make no mistake, this would be suffering, death, a penalty unlike any other. So it was not simply the fact of death that loomed over Jesus. It was the kind of death, this unique death that he was going to face. And here we see that Jesus appropriately felt the weight of this. And the weight of it must have been incredible. And here in the garden, in these moments, was the very beginning of this. As he begins to experience alienation from his Father and the Spirit. In light of this, we see that Jesus prays. Look at verse 39. He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So clearly Jesus understands the weightiness of this cup. The pain of this cup. So we see Jesus in prayer asking, is there another way? Is there another way to accomplish this purpose? If so, would you please spare me this cup of wrath? So here in the garden is a very real temptation for Jesus to choose not to take the cup of wrath, to choose another path. But then we see Jesus submit to the Father's will. In his breathtaking words of submission, verse 39, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. After praying this, Jesus goes to his three closest disciples. We'd ask to watch and pray with him. He finds them sleeping. He had said to Peter, Peter, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. Peter, watch and pray. The Spirit is willing. We can have an internal desire to stay the course, but the flesh is weak. So then Jesus goes and prays again in the same way. Verse 42, my father, he says, cannot pass unless I drink it. Your will be done. And again, he found his disciples sleeping, and Jesus prays a third time, we're told, in the same way. So we see that Jesus was facing a weight that no one in history had ever faced. It was nearly crushing him. He asked, he prays, is there another way? But there was no other way. 
No other means of salvation for sinners like you and me. So Jesus took hold of that and embraced the mission that was his. In this garden, we see that Jesus faced the pain and the weight of the mission, the temptation to avoid it, and yet Jesus was faithful. Absolutely, perfectly faithful. He was faithful to his Father. He was faithful to his role. He was faithful to his followers. The good shepherd was now being struck in this very moment. The pain was beginning. Jesus would not stop. He would move forward, resolutely, pressing forward, all the way to the end. As I alluded to in the beginning, there was another key moment in another garden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam, the first Adam, had failed. He chose not to trust God's word. He chose his own will instead of God's will. So Adam failed in the garden, and as a result, death entered the world. As a result, sin now mars everything. As a result, suffering is real. So ever since then, death and sin have dominated the world. Adam's rebellion, his failure in the garden, his unwillingness to be faithful has impacted every one of us since then. It impacts us today. But now, in this garden, that night, the second Adam faced temptation as well. Would he choose his will or the will of the Father? Jesus chose to entrust himself to the will of his heavenly Father completely committed to that. He would see it through to the end, which would be his own death. And through his own death, Jesus would conquer Satan, sin, and death. So now because of that act in that garden, sin can now be freely and fully forgiven. Death, which had been the ultimate conqueror of all, now has been transformed. Jesus' costly choice not to rebel but to obey changed the world. It reaches back to that first garden. It reaches forward into eternity. It changes things for us as well. In the Gospel of Matthew, the disciples had asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And in what we often call the Lord's Prayer, a part of the prayer was this. Your will be done. In the first garden, Adam had said, not your will, but my will. He chose not God's will, but his own will. But Jesus, what does he pray? Not my will, but your will. He submits himself perfectly, completely to the Father's will. Friends, this, if you're a Christian, is our glorious King. Friends, you see what your Savior endured for us. Do you see what he endured because of us? Because of our sin, because of our rebellion, friend, you see that he was perfectly faithful, tempted, but thoroughly faithful. And because of Christ's faithfulness, there is no longer a cup of wrath for us to drink. He drank it all. So for all who trusted in Christ, there is no longer a cup of wrath, but, but there's only a different cup that we saw last week, the cup the new covenant in his blood we receive every time we receive the Lord's Supper. Friends, what a marvelous Savior. 
But if you're not a, a Christian, we're so glad you're here today. And you may have many thoughts or questions about what is Christianity. I think sometimes the, the, the idea is that Christians are people who are, are perfect, or at least they think they're perfect. They, they attain this through their own kind of moral reformation or their religious devotion. Friends, the story of Christianity is of a perfect Savior who's absolutely perfectly faithful, who was faithful to rescue, to save absolutely imperfect, sin-marred people like us. It's not that we are good, but it's He is good. It's not that we have it all together, but that Jesus, the perfect one, gave Himself in our place for our salvation. So if this is new to you, friend, we'd love for you to explore this more with us. If you'd like to know more, if you came with a friend or a family member, and if they're a Christian, I know they would love to tell you more about it. I'll be at the door on the way out. I'd be happy to chat with you there as well. Now, the focus of our text today is how Jesus was faithful. And even as we see that, though, we'll be helped if we take note of what, what did Jesus do as he sought to be faithful. And we see, friends, that he prayed. In the most weighty, pivotal moment, Jesus chose to pray. So, friend, if Jesus embraced prayer at this pivotal moment, why wouldn't we do the same? When I'm facing the most weighty moment in life, why would I choose anything but praying first? He prayed, he, he turned to the Father rather than away from the Father. He chose to trust, to submit to his Father's will. So friend, when you face temptation or trials this week, pray. And as you pray, know that your Savior prays for you now. He is praying for you when you face temptation. Turn to the Father, trust his will. So friend, where do you turn when you face trials and temptation. Turn inward to yourself alone. Turn to perhaps closest friends or, or family. It's a blessing to have them. In the midst of trials and temptation, turn to your Father. And we'll all face ongoing decisions, even this week. Will we pursue our own will or will we trust the Father's will? And there are many places where it's costly in this life to follow the will of our Father. And to follow the will of the Father will often be outside of our own desires, our own passions. And we face the decision, will I trust that this costly path is the best path? And in light of that, we may wonder, well, is God really trustworthy? Why do I think His will is best? My friend, if He would provide salvation through the sending of Jesus Christ the Son for sinners like us. Undeserving sinners, he would rescue by his grace at the costliest sacrifice. If he's willing to do that out of love for us, is he not worthy of trust in every area of life? I assert that he is worthy of your trust. Trust him today. But even as we pray, we seek to submit to the will of the Father, we will sometimes fail in the face of temptation. I will, and you will. 
good news is our faithful Savior paid for our failure. Because he was faithful, there is grace for us when we fail. Because this is good news for you and me this week. So you see the faithful one submitted. And then third and finally, the faithful one betrayed in verses 47 to 56. We see verse 47 that even as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came with a great crowd with them, swords and clubs. I want to say, well, how did Judas know where to find Jesus? It's night, it's dark, there's no like, you know, find my friend's phone. So you couldn't, couldn't find him, you know, in that way. So how do they know where to look? Well, it's clear, Jesus went to a familiar place. This Garden of Gethsemane, this was not their first visit. It seems likely Jesus and the disciples often went there to pray. But if Jesus knows people are out to get me, why don't you go to a new place? Judas knows the garden. Why go to the garden? Unless Jesus is in complete control. Unless Jesus wants to be arrested. Crowd comes. This large crowd comes. They, they would have had torches. Surely made a lot of noise as they came. Why didn't Jesus and the disciples run? Why didn't they, they hide out as fugitives? Jesus stands and waits for them to come. Jesus is in control. He knew all of this was going to happen. This was not a surprise. He had seen it coming. He told his disciples it was coming. And now he stands as Judas comes and betrays him with the sign of a kiss. Jesus responds, verse 50, friend, do what you came to do. This crowd seizes Jesus. Here, Jesus was calm and at peace. From the human vantage point, the, the crowd has the power. Jesus has none. But even in the way that he speaks to them, it's clear that the guy they're holding on to, he's the one in control. One of his disciples, we're told from the Gospel of John, the Apostle Peter, pulled out a sword, cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Jesus heals the man's ear, tells him to put the sword away. Jesus was not going to try to fight back, but he makes clear, verse 53, don't you think that if I wanted to, I could ask my father and he would send me 12 legions of angels. So Jesus makes clear, look, if I wanted to fight, I could fight and I would win. But Jesus was refusing to fight back. He was committed to God's plan, laid out across the generations, set out in God's word. Jesus then talks to the crowd, basically saying, you're here at night treating me like a robber. Coming with this huge crowd of people to take this one person. And yet I, I taught in the temple every day, in the daylight. I mean, I, I didn't have an army around me. I was sitting there teaching. Why didn't you grab me there? Why didn't you arrest me then? Even as he prescribes what could have been a better strategy, Jesus is calmly in control. And then it concludes, verse 56. Look at verse 56. Then all the disciples left him and fled. You remember just a few minutes ago, they all had said, we'll die with you. Trying to top one another, I'll die with you more, even. But here, in the moment, when the pressure's on, all of them are gone. 
They scatter. They abandon him. And to differing degrees, they don't want to be seen with Jesus. So Jesus, the faithful Savior and King, is betrayed by one of his disciples, abandoned by all the others, and though surrounded by a crowd, utterly alone as he's arrested. When you see the peace and the power of Jesus, they came for him. He was waiting for them. He would not let his followers fight back. He peacefully and yet powerfully gives himself up. Jesus has come for a mission, and the time had come. And out of great love and this costly sacrifice, Jesus was heading to the cross where he would choose to die for his disciples, the very disciples who had abandoned him in his moment of greatest need. He was going to die for, for those who came in the crowd with clubs to take him away. He was going to die for all those across the generations, sinners and rebels like you and me, who would see our need of a Savior and would turn to him by faith. Friends, what a Savior we have in Jesus. So, friend, if you're a Christian, this is your Savior. This gracious, faithful, powerful, Just as Jesus had said, he would be struck and they would all fall away. They would scatter. They would fail their king. And we do the same. We still fail our king often. But just like Christ was not surprised by the failure of his disciples, he's not surprised when we fail. He's not surprised when we sin. And just as he didn't give up on them, he will not give up on you. He's at work in you by his grace. The Spirit's at work in you. He will finish what he started in you. Don't be crushed when you fall and when you fail. There's restoration and grace for you. Because Jesus was faithful, there is hope, a sure hope for unfaithful people like me and you. So let's trust him today. And treasure his faithfulness. As a means of response, there are several ways to respond. One of those is the Connect card we mentioned earlier. If you'd like to know more about Christianity, if you have some questions, you can note that on there. Or maybe there's ways we could pray for you. Maybe this past week was a week of utter failure. You, you fell back into habitual sin. You're overwhelmed today by guilt and shame. Friend, we would love to pray with you for that. Maybe you'd like to talk about the fight against sin. Or maybe it is you, you see temptation coming this week, and so you say, would you, would you pray for me? Because I know there's a very real temptation that I'll face this week in this way or that. We'd love to pray and serve with you in that way.